Welcome back to another episode of Public Problems. Here again, I'm with a number of Bush School students who did a, a half a semester long project um, that they're going to tell you about today. And their topic was, or is, uh, the decline of trust in government. And we're going to walk through that. But before we do, I'd like to give the, you're going to hear from at least five additional voices after mine as well. So I'll let the group uh, take a moment and introduce themselves so you can put a name with the voice. <clears throat> Howdy, my name is Faith Dingus. Uh, I'm Tony Ramos. I'm Laura McGrath. I'm Matthew Bothauer. And I'm Joseph Byron. All right. So uh, let me begin by just saying thank you for taking the time to meet with me today and to uh, talk about your project and allowing me to share it with the general public. I think you picked an important issue and one that is clearly demonstrated as a challenge when you look at the graphs in your report to see how trust in government has changed over time. But before we get there, um, you could pick a topic on anything that you like, and so you picked the decline in trust in government. So why was that a topic that the group was interested in? I think one reason we chose it was because um, in order for the government to solve any issue, people need to have trust in it, and if people aren't trusting in the government, it's going to be very hard for it to achieve its objectives of trying to actually help people and solve our problems. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, trust is one cornerstone of democracy and democratic government for it to work. If the people don't have trust in their government, that causes all kinds of challenges for the for the government and for the implementation of a variety of things. So, um, I think it is a is a really important issue. So let's just dive right into it. Um, you start your report by talking about the history of government trust. And when I was flipping through your report, uh, one of the things that really caught my attention was one of these graphs you use, which is figure 1.1 in your report, that shows public trust in government is near historic lows and has clearly been trending downward since at least the Johnson administration. So maybe we could start by um, talking about uh, how this has changed over time and any things that it's related with and um, just kind of the broad history of government trust in the U.S. Well, with the history, um, at least of polling, they started doing the polling in the late 50s, as you can see in the graph. And so, as you said, like, I think 1964 is its peak, highest level above, a little bit above 75%. And every president since then has had some sort of issue during the presidency, which has contributed to the decline in public trust. Um, starting with Johnson, and I think this will be discussed a little bit later, um, the news media, when they're reporting wars, never really were very critical. They'd always be on the government side and kind of report what the government wanted them to say. And starting with the Vietnam War, they actually started to be more critical of the war, starting with the Tet Offensive, which was an event that occurred during um, the Lunar New Year in January of 1968. The, the Vietnamese launched like an attack into South Vietnam. And even though the U.S. and South Vietnamese forces were able to repel the attack, it really kind of changed the Americans' perception of the war and that, hey, the North Vietnamese are a lot more formidable than we thought. And I think later that year, um, Walter Cronkite, who was like a major news um, reporter at that time and anchored the CBS Evening News, um, came out with an editorial where basically said, like, I don't think we're going to be able to win the war. We're not going to lose it, but I don't think we're going to win it. And that really changed Americans' perception of the war. And um, later on, not, not Johnson's administration, but going into Nixon's administration, you know, there was the Watergate scandal mm -hmm. where, like, they uncovered that, like, people broke into the Democratic National Committee to try to, I guess, 
bug the place. And ultimately, it's not sure if Nixon actually, you know, ordered the break-in, but he did order a cover-up of all those events, you know, and they were paying people off. And then later, when he resigned, Ford um, pardoned him, and there's like, a conspiracy about, like, you know, is there some corrupt bargain where, like, he'd become president and he would pardon uh, Nixon. And then... Uh, What's some more times when the biggest controversy for a president is putting listening devices in a room? <laughs> Come a long way since then. So there was a, a big drop under Nixon, which your grab shows, but this continued under Ford, which you highlight, and maybe in part, you know, some of the conversation around that is, was Ford, you know, in on it, or was there some corrupt bargain? And this continues under Carter, and, but after that you see some, you see a spike in the Reagan administration, and it's up and down um, from there. Are there any key events kind of starting in the 80s and going throughout um, uh, George H.W. Bush's tenure that had noticeable effects on public trust in government? I think that's not going to further, but I know Reagan, I guess, when it went up, the the economy got better because all throughout the 70s, there was just like Nixon got off the gold standard. And so there was massive inflation pretty much, all, I think, all the way to like the end of the 70s. And just also during Carter's administration, there was the Iran hostage crisis. So it's just a lot of this, uh, the government isn't doing much. And it was right after also Vietnam, which we ended up losing that war. And so there's just sort of this, this lull in like people's faith or trust in government. And when Reagan came in, with the economy getting better, I think it definitely improved people's trust and faith in government. And then it's like with Bush, it's just where it spiked was during like the invasion of Iraq to like repel them from Kuwait. Mm -hmm. And so that definitely got to a high. But then I think for his campaign, he had promised, he said, we're not going to have an increase in taxes, which later to help actually cut the, um, the deficit, he did raise taxes. And so people kind of got upset with that, which... I think most likely cost him the election, and then it went down. And then with Clinton again, um, we had the expanding economy, and it actually kind of peaked right, I guess, around 9-11. And then after that happened, um, there was obviously the war in Afghanistan, but then the war in Iraq, um, where it said, hey, there's weapons of mass destruction. They're actually finding the weapons of mass destruction, and that definitely... Thing, hurt not only George Bush's George W. Bush's credibility, but also the credibility of the United States, and it kind of tanked and hasn't really gotten up um, from there. You can see some. Uh, I think the economy is a really interesting one that you highlight. That seems, at least, just from a cursory look at the the trend line. I mean, you know, in the late '90s there was a bit of a recession, if I remember correctly, and that's about the time the decline in trust went uh, happened under Bush. And then during the Clinton years, for most of the um, uh, excuse me, in the early 90s, but in the Clinton years, it was we had a pretty thriving economy that was growing, as you mentioned, um, and you can see as the economy is getting better and the uh, kind of the all the tech stocks are driving a, a big expansion in the economy, trust is going up, and then, like you said, 9-11 is kind of a peak, and then the war, uh, particularly in Iraq, was, was deeply unpopular, um, and so you can see declines in trust there. Um, so where are we now with this? So you can see it's kind of, at least in your graph here, it's leveled off in the Obama years. It took a, di a dip, um, in the Obama years, but then recovered. So where is, uh, where are we kind of with the current state of affairs for what the trust in government is in the U S? 
Um, well, in 2017, only 18% of Americans said they trust the government in Washington to do what is right, either just about always or most of the time. And you can see how the trust in government changes with who is um, who controls the presidency. Mm -hmm. So under the Obama administration, Democrats said that they trusted the government more than Republicans, and then that changed with the Trump administration as well. And then... In 2018, there was another poll on U.S. in um, with citizens in their confidence on U.S. institutions, and um, only 11% of people said that they trust Congress a great deal or quite a lot, which is the lowest of all institutions that were polled. Um, I think your figure there is another figure that unfortunately the listeners can't see, but I think this is really neat how it shows in, two, in 2018, as you mentioned. There's a pretty serious uh, variance on which types of institutions are trusted and which ones aren't, even within kind of the government of the U.S. So right. the military having the most confidence at 74%, and then small business always have uh, always has to be positive towards small yeah. business, and then the police are the only three kind of institutions that ha have a majority support, and then it really drops off after that. Um, Church organized religion, the presidency comes in at 37%, which is right on par with the Supreme Court, which, I have to be honest, was a little surprising to me. I would have felt there was more uh, faith or trust in the Supreme Court overall, but apparently not. Um, the medical system fares worse than the presidency and the Supreme Court. And then you have banks, public schools, organized labor, big business, newspapers, criminal justice system, and then by television news you're down to 20% trust and then Congress at 11. So it's kind of interesting that given an overall decline in the trust of government, it's not, it's not universal or uniform across all the different institutions of government. Right. I, I think the Congress really surprised us a lot. Um, I, I didn't expect the presidency to be so far up at 37%, but, um, and then Congress be so far down at 11%, but that's where we are. So what types of, in this section, you, you also talk a little bit about what are some of the factors that affect uh, or at least are related with tr overall trust. So tell me a little bit about some of the factors that the research shows are, uh, are correlated with trust in government. So there's a lot of research um, on the causes that lead to the decline in trust in government. A lot of them can, can be separated by economic, sociocultural, and political factors. Economic would just be the public perception on the economy. When the economy is doing well, people trust the government, and then vice versa. Um, so the sociocultural factors would be something like rising crime, poverty, homelessness, decline in civic engagement. And then political factors typically look like evaluations of the political process, political corruption, government scandals, and then the increased media attention to those political scandals, which we'll get into later, and then citizens' perception of incumbents and institutions. Um, but for our paper, we focused more on the decline in social capital, the public perception on processes, and then the political scandals. And we found that um, or we, we looked into those because researchers found that when government performance is better, the trust in government does not rebound in unison. So there must be something underlying that leads to the decline in trust in government. The So for social capital, 
we defined it as various features of social organizations such as forums, networks, and social trust that lead to coordination for mutual benefit. And the idea here is that when people are more engaged in their communities, they generate trust with the people surrounding them. And then the trust often extends to proximate government. So this mm -hmm. would be looking more so at like state and local government rather than federal. Um, and then alternatively, alternatively, when citizens disengage from civic life, they're unable to trust um, the institutions that govern their political life. Um, so some of this has to do with just overall civic engagement. As people right. are less engaged, they get distrustful of those institutions that they don't uh, that they don't um, interact with. Right. Um, as far as the research and like the statistical results that we found was that social capital does influence confidence in state and local governments, respectively. And um, but civic engagement and interpersonal trust only affect the long-term equilibrium of trust. So that there's a significant increase in social capital and civic engagement in society, it's, it's um, the results for trust in government's not going to be immediate. Well, you highlight something there too that uh, we should be clear about also, that not only is there differences across uh, institutions and differences across like federal agencies within the federal government, there's right. also differences across different levels of government. Right. So in the U.S. we have federal government and state government and the local governments, and people's opinions of those governments aren't the same. Right. Um, so that's, a, that's an important piece as well. And you, the group mostly focused on the decline in trust in federal government, is that correct? Yes. And did you find much else about the what's related to the state and local governments? I mean, performance was one, social capital. Um, did these things also have an impact on the federal government, the best you could tell from your research? Um, as far as the federal government, I think the most compelling factor that we looked at was um, citizens' evaluations of political processes. Um, most of the time when we think of process in regards to government, it's thought of as like red tape, obstacles and unnecessary rules that are in place that take precedence over a government institution providing services. Um, but for the sake of this paper, we focus on fairness, equity, respect, and honesty, and found that um, these particular aspects of process matter to citizens in their evaluations of the government. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, where we are. So this is the current state of affairs, and one of the things that's going on in modern society um, that uh, I think there's just clear evidence all over the place that things like social media and things like fake news have played a real role in continuing this trend of people not having faith in government and part of this battle, I think, or part of this uh, discussion is really about quality of information. And, um, and I think both uh, sides of the political aisle in the U.S. at the federal level have taken advantage of these tactics, right? They, it's easy to spread or information or misinformation in 2018 through a variety of sources. So what did your group... Um, what did your group find uh, with respect to this phenomenon in particular, this in the era of fake news? What role does this play in people's declining trust in government? Sure. So the so more than just um, what government's actually doing to decline trust, whether it's uh, 
controversy, scandals, things like that. Um, equally as important as how we perceive government um, and how we view it. So I kind of, I wrote about uh, fake news, downright um, just false lies, but I also wrote about distorted, one-sided news that you oftentimes see from major cable news outlets. Um, so I was saying um, truthful and factual information accessible to everyone um, is a, a very important pillar to a free democratic society. And I think um, that we, we haven't seen that in a long time. I think the genesis of that, and, and it kind of depends on who you're reading, um, can come from the 24-hour news cycle in the early to mid-90s. And so you get this situation where instead of three or four hours at night where the journalists, the older journalists like Walter Cronkite, are hitting on the important facts of what's going on, this, this, and that, you end up getting, um, it gets so spread out throughout the day that you end up needing to increase ratings and views, and so they, these news outlets start picking fights and kind of creating and fabricating stories and only telling one side of the story. Um, it's interesting, people seem to get that intuitively, right? When we looked at the list of institutions that were most or least trusted, the, I mean, one of the least trusted, the one that's slightly better than Congress, <laughs> is uh, television news. And so people kind of intuitively, I think, understand that television news is telling, tw the 24-hour network stuff is telling one side of the story and not getting the full picture. Yeah, and you can you can see that today with the uh, with the caravan. Mm -hmm. What's going mm -hmm. on with the border. If you, you flip it on one... Uh, cable news network, it's uh, it's a matter of law and order, and we need to get these people out. This is not, if you turn on the other, we have a moral imperative to bring everyone in. So you don't get, um, you don't get a holistic view, really, if you're, especially if you're only listening into one cable network that kind of backs up your, your already preconceived notions on politics. You have a lot of, uh, like, motivated reasoning effect, right, where people are just kind of confirming some of their own biases. And um, fake news, uh, which is a, is a term we, that's kind of relatively new, I guess, in the last couple of years, that's just that's downright false and fabricated news. And you oftentimes see that on online and social media outlets more so than um, cable news networks. Um, and you'll see that oftentimes with Twitter and Facebook and there are some. There are a lot of negative consequences to it. One being, uh, in recent, a recent example would be the 2016 shooting of uh, Comet Ping Pong Pizza Restaurant, which started um, from a conspiracy theory that the Democratic National Committee and Democratic Party officials were running a child sex ring out of the back of a pizza restaurant, and um, someone foolishly believed it and. and you know, brought a firearm into the restaurant and started shooting. Thankfully, no one was injured. But these are the kinds of consequences that can happen from the proliferation of fake news. Uh, and I think it's it's scary that people believe things like that. One other thing you talk about in this section that has some nice trends in the figures, you have one that's on political polarization, and that's right next to trust in government. You're on your figure 3.1 and 3.2. And so did you find much about, I mean, we talked about the polarization of news outlets, but is there a general trend from just overall polarization in society and decline in trust in government from what you, what you found in this section? The information on that is, 
it's kind of spotty, but from the articles that I was reading at, uh, from the Pew Research Center, they are making the claim that there is a, uh, that they do sort of coincide with each other and they feed off of each other. And so when, um, and there's, there's obviously political reasons for why polarization, not just media reasons. Um, I mean, I'm thinking of like Newt Gingrich in the house and, and mm -hmm. starting the new contract with America. Um, but they feed off of each other. So when you get increased polarization, you see that in the news and that in turn increases polarization because they're, they're saying one side of the story like Fox or MSNBC. And so, um, I was writing that they are, they're kind of bolstering each other mm -hmm. and it's, it's kind of scary to think about. There's really not a check on it. Yeah. I think there are lots of things <laughs> to be concerned about that you highlight in your report. One I was just thinking about was about the institutions again, which is the, the difference between the trust in the military and the trust in Congress, um, where you have 75% trust in the military and 11% trust in Congress to me, seems like that's just a recipe for martial law. I mean, it seems like it's just really a recipe for concern. I mean, it's good that we have a high support of, of the military, all things considered, but in comparison to the, the trust we have in, our, in the rest of our government, um, seems like just one example of something that could lead to some challenges if, you're, if the way in which you govern in part is based on what the people are willing to accept or what they approve of. So... And then, of course, uh, polarization is one that we that we talk about regularly in modern dialogue that uh, is a challenge. Um, and all of these are related to trust. So it, this is concerning to me because I, I always have a hard time thinking, how do we reverse these trends, right? Given how polarized we are and given the nature, the fractured nature of media and the... the um, incentives, I suppose, of politicians to play this up. Um, I always have a hard time coming away, like, how do we kind of step back down from this precipice that seems really concerning to me? And so you highlight two solutions or two things that might uh, help play a role in improving trust in government. So tell me about those. What's the first one, and why do you think as a group, uh, that it is is useful. So um, the first solution that we looked at um, to maybe reverse this trend of declining trust in government is through increasing e-government. And so according to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's website, e-government is the interchange of value, including services information through an electronic medium, and includes interactions and relationships between government, citizens, business, internal efficiencies, and other forms of government. So this broad definition kind of you think of e-government maybe even going back as far in the 1800s with telegrams and mm -hmm. stuff like that just different ways the government can be efficient to improve itself and at the end of the day just be more effective in responding to citizens needs um, and all that <clears throat> would help increase the trust in government through effectiveness and efficiency responsiveness and transparency so that citizens can say hey I can depend on government to provide these services to me I can trust them and not be corrupt, etc. Um, so yeah, so increasing in e-government, the what we think of it today is kind of like more stuff being on the computer that we're able to access government services easier through social media, um, maybe mobile-friendly devices. That kind of trend towards what we see of it today really started in the 1990s. 
Um, and so that's that was kind of like a spike in um, trust in government. And part of that was when um, Clinton Gore got elected. They got elected on this idea of um, of reinventing government. Mm-hmm. 1992 election, and they made a National Performance Review, the NPR, in 1993. So this was a initiative headed by Vice President Gore, which was basically focusing on putting um, customers first, cutting red tape, and empowering employees to get results, and cutting government back to basics. So one of the ways they would do this is by putting people online rather than in line. And so they went over, and basically during the 90s, the there wasn't really, I guess the form of e-government they had was just internal email services within like businesses or government agencies, not really stuff, not stuff that really linked people together or agencies together. So one of the big trends that we're doing was trying, well, the NPR went over and looked at like all the different ways that they could improve government. And one of these ways was to increase the efficiency and start investing in these type of technologies, which included maybe actually having a government website for each agency actually, so that people can actually look that up and get that information and then putting records and stuff online. Like one of the big things of the NPR and Vice President Gore was allowing people to file their taxes online and so in just reforming the IRS. And that was like one of the keystone things that worked really well. Funny thing is there was a time not too long ago when you couldn't just go online and Google something and all the major agencies have websites with data and performance stuff. And that's all, you know, we kind of take that as a given now, but not that long ago that wasn't even a choice. Yeah, and that just, that trend really continued just in the from the '90s, and the Clinton administration kept going. Um, and in the GW's administration, in 2002, Congress passed the E-Government Act, um, which basically tasked the Office of Budget Management to spearhead efforts to develop and promote electronic government services across the federal government by promoting the use of emergency technologies. And they have to report on every year to Congress about this. Um, and so one of those things was just making sure that each um, each government website or yeah, each w- government agency has a website. And then recently, I think in 2017, might have been, well, I'll get to that in a little bit. But there was a, another law that was passed that basically said that each of these websites and all the new websites in the future have to be mobile friendly. And so that was just this another mm-hmm. cool thing. Um so yeah, so this big trend of e-government just kept going, and just not necessarily just at the federal government, because there's both there's both vertical and horizontal diffusion of these different initiatives across all levels of government, mm-hmm. which is really cool to see. One interesting case study was in Roanoke, Virginia. So in Roanoke, Virginia, it's a smaller town, only about a hundred thousand people. In 2014, they had a couple social media accounts, um, first community, and only 22,000 followers on Facebook and Twitter. So less than a year later, Roanoke had over 40 social media accounts for all those different agencies in the city and 100,000 followers on Facebook and Twitter. It's like 500% growth rate. Mm-hmm. And because originally they were thinking just like social media, they're like, okay, it's just what the kids are doing nowadays. It's more like posts like, hey, we're having a town hall meeting this time or, hey, um, water's going to be shut off in this next. So more like kind of like an electronic newsletter. They would push out information, not really expecting it to be that interactive. Mm-hmm. Then in, there was like a big snowstorm that year in 2014, and in that snowstorm, they're like, put out a little thing, hey, it would be cool if you all shared pictures or something of the snowstorm, and they, I think they had over 
400,000 people viewed those photos. And so the people were like, city officials thought that was crazy. And they were like, we can utilize these resources way better and then how we can advertise our town and talk with these um, our constituents and provide these services. So one of the cool things these officials were saying is that they're treating social media kind of like a new and improved 311 service. So instead of calling in and saying, hey, there's a pothole, citizens go over and like, take a picture of the pothole and then comment on the agency's website. So I guess for Texas, that could be like dot or something. Mm-hmm. And then those agencies are able to like directly, hopefully address those issues and get that information faster than they would. And then if not, then those people can just share it and be like, well, you guys still haven't fixed this. It's been a week now. And then just have that conversation online, which you weren't able to have in the past, which is really cool. And so that, that's just one example of a little town in Virginia, and that's spreading like just across the nation, all the different, all these different um, communities. It's kind of a race to the top to see who can have the best e-government and how they can talk to their, reach out to their citizens and serve them the best way they can. Yeah, no, I think, um, I think the, the adoption at the local and, and state levels is, uh, is really interesting. And these are levels of government that are much closer to the, the actual citizens. And they also provide a lot of the uh, actual services. You know, as we talked about in class, the federal government doesn't actually, um, outside of military, um, there aren't a ton of services that are actually implemented and uh, executed by the federal government. It usually plays the role of the banker, right? And then they give money to the states who dole it out to the local governments for actual services. Um, one of the things that uh, you mentioned at the end of this section that I wanted to hit on as the, uh, as the academic is a paper from the Public Administration Review, uh, which talks about um, some of the effects e-government uh, has on trust, uh, trust in government and what uh, these researchers, Tolbert and Mossberger, Found. So tell me a little bit about that after you, you know, we've talked about how there's been a rise in e-government and it makes intuitive sense to me that as citizens have more access, there's more transparency, more ease of access to their officials and to having channels that they can give feedback or let their concerns be aired. Um, but um, it's, you know, that's intuitive to me, but is there, what is the, what does the research say that these professors found? Um, so basically they just went over and their research showed that e-government provided increased participation of citizens like political process and just asking government for these services and fostered a greater government accountability, transparency, responsiveness. Um, so yeah, so just government websites have just a positive effect of someone's level so much trust in government, especially at the local level. Um, the federal level and state level, more of a factor of age, partisanship, partisanship, gender, and ethnicity. But especially at the very local level where they're actually providing these services on a day-to-day basis, just having that accountability with the government through really good e-government so they know exactly what's going on in their communities, I think that just really helps. Yeah, uh, I, uh, I agree. I think the, um, the thing that I wanted to hit on here is just, as you mentioned, um, which is there here again, we find differences between what impacts uh, trust at the local level and what impacts trust at the federal level. And I thought it was really interesting that these, uh, these researchers found that the e-government uh, did help to foster greater government accountability, transparency, and responsiveness 
at the local level, and that was related with increases in trust in government, but that at the state and federal level, as you get a little bit more removed from the citizens, that it's still more of a factor of age, which probably has to do with what people's experiences with government have been over time and kind of the major events throughout U.S. history. Um, partisanship makes sense, right? We've already talked about this one. And so as things are more partisan, people are more critical of whichever party is in power, which leads to government bashing, which builds on itself. Um, um, and don't have a good story for gender, but ethnicity also makes sense to me too, right? Different people have been treated differently by the government and different parties. And so some groups maybe are more suspicious of government based on how those groups have been treated over time. I would think for the gender ethnicity, just like how reflective government is of you. Like are, mm-hmm. if the government is mostly run by a bunch of guys as a female, would you be more willing to trust the government? Or if it's more equitable between men and women, would you have, okay, I can see myself represent in government better. Yeah, and there's actually a whole line of research in public administration on this idea of representativeness. And uh, a lot of it is looks at the very local level, like in education. And so that, you know, at, at a very, very local uh, level, students who can identify with their teachers that look like them perform better and they trust them better. And so if a government overall is not representative of the people that it serves, people that aren't representative uh, or aren't represented would probably be more suspicious, right? You can imagine if you're part of an out group and everyone, uh, the government is being run by someone else, to your point, like if it's all a bunch of white guys, as it has been historically, maybe there are reasons why minority women might be really suspicious of government because their interests aren't at the table. And so the representativeness, I think, is a really, is a really important one as well. Um, okay, so I think that's a nice overview of e-government, how it's expanded, and ways in which some mechanisms, which at least maybe at the, at the local level and maybe the state level, can play a, a role in increasing performance, uh, increasing trust. Um, the stuff at the federal level still seems a little kind of hard to break through. Um, but you have one other solution here, which is corruption or limiting corruption, not increasing it. I uh, certainly don't want to increase corruption. Um, but um, the idea is here, I imagine, and then you can tell me about it, would be great, um, that the less corruption we have, the more trust we have, which seems like a pretty straightforward argument. So tell me a little bit about what you found on how limiting corruption um, might help improve trust in government. Alrighty, so um, <clears throat> one thing that I found interesting is that the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development reported that one of the top cited reasons for a lack of trust in government is specifically due to corruption. And uh, they went on to say that it's not simply policies themselves or the outcomes of the policies that determine the levels of trust, but it's the way that they're designed and implemented. Mm-hmm along with policymakers' compliance with the broader principles and standards of behavior. So looking at it from that perspective, like what's the root of the actual problem of distrust in government? It's at its very core just a fear of corruption. Mm -hmm. And um, we thought that a great idea would be to um, just increase like a community response as a whole, like citizens themselves. Um, and then also, like, the government can also have, like, an institutional response to, like, increase their presence as well. Yeah, so at the community level, 
I think this is, is really important, and this has come up in other conversations with other groups, uh, but is this idea of the relationship between civic engagement and trust, which we started, uh, started with at the beginning. And so uh, it seems like finding ways to increase civic engagement might be one strategy to, uh, to improve the community response. Um, when you mention institutional responses, is there anything in particular that you found that is a, is a type of institutional response that might be more, more helpful than others? Yeah, so uh, one source that I found, she was an ethics director for a local government, and uh, she says that research-based training and related tools can dramatically reduce government corruption. So what she recommends is that, like, at the local level, uh, just local governments themselves can focus on, like, whenever public servants come in for the first time, they have to take ethics training mm-hmm. and compliance training and, and stuff along those lines and then as time goes on, and that that's another thing is that just building trust itself it's not going to be an overnight process so and, and also it's not just like a government by itself process like the government can only do what the government can do but also like the people themselves also have to say hey like we're voting you in like you're supposed to be representing us, so do your job effectively, and they have to be accountable as well. So, like back to the civic engagement and social capital thing, but um, yeah. So the government itself, they can do the whole ethics thing, and also um, just joining other organizations that are like intent on limiting corruption. So, like being part of the OECD, like that itself says a lot that America is trying to better the situation. And just being like interactive with nonprofits that are also trying to limit corruption as well. Yeah, a lot of this is just signaling, right? By you can implement things uh, throughout government to limit corruption, which we do on lots of dimensions in the U.S. We are pretty strict on, I think, particularly at the federal level, um, and also throughout the states. I mean, Texas again as an example. Uh, as a public employee, every nickel that I spend, Texas tracks. And so it's really hard for individual employees and the Texas government, for example, to do anything corrupt when it comes to money because we are very, very concerned about financial responsibility and that it limits the types of behaviors that people can engage in. Um, And um, I think this community response is a really interesting one and the the institutional response is in there both. One's more, like I said, of signaling with with, uh, tying in with institutions, but also kind of international norms or norms across these organizations, and then one's more at the kind of getting people at the local level to be more engaged, both of which seem really clear cases to me of ways to improve trust and uh, to improve trust in government at a variety of levels. Um, well, before we move to conclusion, I would just say first, I applaud you for taking this topic on, because as the group knows now, there is not one cause of decline in trust in government, and identifying solutions have been really challenging for scholars and for researchers all over the world because some of these examples that we highlight, for example, e-government, I believe should improve trust in government. We've been doing e-government now pretty solidly for 15 years and we don't see a huge change at the federal level anyways. And same thing with some of these community responses. You know, there's a lot of efforts at civic engagement that don't seem to to, to matter significantly. And this is a really tough topic to think through 
And I think it's because it really has to do with a cultural narrative and a cultural image. And I think when you look at the institutions earlier on in the, in the report, this really gives you your clue, right? It's really weird that if we had a uniformed idea about government, that Congress would be 11% and the military would be 75% because they're both functions of government. Um, and so I think a lot of this has to do with our own cultural narratives and, uh, Kettle in our text from class highlights that this is a this is a feature of a of America as well. I mean, we while it has been declining since we started tracking it in the fifties, we don't have good data before the fifties. And I think fifties were in kind of basking in World War Two, uh, winning World War Two, and a lot of growth that came out of the fifties. And then it's kind of gone down since then. But we don't know what it was like for the fifties uh, systematically and. Uh, Kettle, again, highlights this idea that Americans are just naturally distrustful of government. It's sort of what led to the American Revolution. It's sort of why we designed our government with so many checks and balances compared to other governments that were in place at that time. And so I think part of this really is a function of just who we are as Americans and being distrustful of government, which in some ways is good, right? It helps us hold uh, our government accountable sometimes. And in some ways, it's bad because it leads to breakdown in trust, not just in government, but throughout society and towards how we treat one another. So uh, I know this was tough for you all because it, there isn't a silver bullet in this one. And there's not even clear completely to the researchers what's really driving this. So I applaud your, uh, I applaud your efforts here. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that is a part of your report or thoughts that you had as, uh, as you wrote this report that we haven't covered already? that might be interesting or useful for the listeners. I just think like you said, like kind of the prehistory, like I know the United States, like we're a nation of immigrants and primarily it's been people that have left their home countries, maybe not just for economic gain, but they had some problem with their, their home mm -hmm. government there. And that's yeah. where they came here. And that's, I guess, like you said, still being felt today, just on like where we came from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't think about that, but that's definitely true as well. The reason we are probably naturally distrustful is uh, Waves and waves of immigrants that have come here over time have come because their own governments uh, have not treated them well. I mean, we even have this now with the, you know, we mentioned the migrant case, and there are you know, thousands of people fleeing Honduras because their government essentially can't protect them from the gangs uh, in, in uh, Honduras. And so here's another group of people that are trying to immigrate to the U.S. because they're fleeing their home country that hasn't treated them so well. And this is also... Uh, what, a, what led to a lot of Mexican, uh, Mexico, Mexican immigrant immigration as well is both economic, because they're not the same type of economic opportunities, but the Mexican government hasn't always had the best handle on gang violence. And so a lot of people are fleeing failures of their own, of their own government. So that's kind of built into our national ethos, I think. All right. Well, thank you again uh, for all your work. This was really interesting to talk about and fun to, to do with you today. So thanks again for your work, and I look forward to sharing this uh, on the podcast.